Good morning. Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin with prayer this morning. Dear Father, we pray that your spirit will be with us, that as we study your word, we can see you more clearly. Lord, there is a battle raging on this planet for, for hearts and minds that we, that we can know you. We pray that you will uh, heal our minds. Let us be effective in presenting the truth about you, that we can set more people free uh, from fear and, and insecurity. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. And we are doing the lesson, uh, number 11, in our quarterly, Agents of Hope, God's Great Missionaries. And the lesson title is, Mission in a Pagan Land, Daniel and Company. And somebody read the memory verse for us, please. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief officer for permission not to defile himself this way. Any thoughts about that text? What, what kind of food did Daniel and his friends request? Vegetables and water. Vegetables and water. Was this, was this issue primarily an issue of vegetarianism versus meat-eating? How, how do we know that? See, evidence. See, we, we, we believe that, but what evidence would we have to know that it wasn't primarily about vegetarianism versus meat-eating? Because I've actually heard this text used to support the vegetarian approach to life. Haven't you heard this text used for that? But was that what it was for? Was that food offered to idols? Yes, and we're, yes, it was absolutely about food offered to idols, no question about it. We're going to come to that point. But how can we know it wasn't about vegetarianism? The children of Israel have been given me long before. Yeah, Exodus chapter 12, starting 1 through 11. We won't read all the verses there. But this is the instructions that God gave the children of Israel regarding an annual festival called the Passover. And it says in the Passover that uh, on the 14th day of the month, the people of the community must slaughter a, a, a lamb, and they are to eat that lamb before morning, every year. Do you think Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel were observers of the Passover festival in their homeland? So they clearly weren't vegetarians. They were eating meat. So the issue is not one of vegetarianism. It really is the issue of, of foods offered to idols. Now, what's the issue about that? What thoughts do you have about that issue? Why was this a concern? I don't look at it so much as a concern that the offering to idols as that it was a witness to the true God. If they had given in to, to eating his food that was offered to idols, it was like they were saying it was okay to worship idolatry or another god because they were offered to other gods. It was their way of standing true to God that they only worshipped the true God. Do you notice it said uh, in, the, in the text there, it said he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself to defile himself. What do you think that means? How would he have been defiled? Well, it would be like he was consenting to the worship of the idols because they always offered the food first to the idols and, the, and then they ate it. And it was an act of worship. And he didn't want to appear to be worshiping the idols. And, and that would have, I think he felt, defiled his spiritual self by appearing. Would this defilement been one of what you're describing, a spiritual defilement or a physical defilement? Yeah. A spiritual. Okay. And so what in, in Old Testament times, um, would we say this was like a ceremonial defilement? Didn't they get defiled for all kinds of things? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Touching a dead body was a defilement. 
right? I mean, we could list a whole long of things. So, so do you think that they're concerned about somehow uh, staying as best they can in harmony with God's instructions for the Old Testament Jewish people? Why was that important? Well, you, you've already said it, but... <coughs> part... they're, what they grew up believing, their core belief in what God had told them to do. Yeah, their core belief in what God had told them to do, no question. Do you think that they had an appreciation for the meaning of those things? Or do you think they just did it because they were told to do it? No, I, I think they understood the meaning. Yes. It's Robinson King in this one I read this chapter. The, you know, when I, at, at growing up when I read this story, even when I was teaching it to my children, it seemed like such a simple thing. You know, what was the big deal involved? Just don't eat it. It's all for the idols. I mean, I don't understand what the big deal would be. But it was a very big deal to them. Because, first of all, if they gave in to the small thing like that, then other things that came along would be easier and easier to do, number one. Second of all, they truly believed in their heart that they were sent, they were taken there for a purpose, they were captured for a purpose, and it, they were determined that in no way would they let anything come between them and their God. And all this... This seemed like a small thing. It turned out to be a very big thing because they were such witnesses that when they were presented before the rest of the people, they were ten times greater than the other people. Did, did you notice a difference between how the food offered to idols was handled by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how Paul directs people to handle it in Romans yeah. 14? Yeah. To him it was... Which is different than what the council of the uh, first great general conference said in Acts. You know, one of the things they said uh, as far as for the Gentile believers, that they should avoid strangulated meat, meat that was strangled and blood, and food offered to idols. So the general conference there in Acts after Christ said, you know, still shouldn't eat food offered. But Paul in Romans says, for everyone be fully persuaded in their own mind. He says in Romans 14, but he says, you know, if it's offered to an idol, an idol's a piece of wood, it's a piece of stone, it has no power to do anything. How can it change the nutritional value of the food? We say the only power of, of the idol is the power of some lie that it gets into your head, some superstition it gets you to believe, and it changes your perspective on things. That's its power if it gets you to believe something that's not true. So Paul's making the distinction. If you have faith, the man of faith does not worry about whether he bought some some peaches or apples, and whether those peaches or apples or, or venison or whatever it was, was laid before an idol before he took it home and prepared his meal. A man of faith realizes a piece of stone can't change that food. But in Daniel's time, the concern was, if you ate that food that had been offered to idols, and you excel, and you do well, and you grow strong, and you're wise, then people will draw the conclusion that all these blessings have come from these false gods. And so I think what you've all said, that Daniel and his friends wanted to make a clear distinction that any benefit that was seen in their lives could not be attributed in any way, directly, indirectly, to the gods of Babylon. You had your hand up. I don't think there's any reason to think that those meats were necessarily kosher. The meats in uh, in Paul's time? Babylon. Yeah, yeah, I don't know know that they necessarily were either. Yeah. So I think that may have been a factor as well for them. They had been taught to avoid certain meats. Sure, I would agree with that too. Unclean meats are very likely a possibility. This Sam. food actually came from, uh, you know, from, the king's, you know, from the king's table. And, right. And so I think that, that that had to do with the culture too, that they were... You know, rejecting the culture in a way and saying, okay, let's, let's prepare. Let's see, let's see what, you know, what our God can do for us versus the cultural time. So it was a separation to make a point. Paul also said that if 
his eating that meat was going to cause someone else to stumble. He would not do it. He would rather not do it than, than be a stumbling block to somebody who was not as strong as he was. And how about if it's not doing it caused people to have superstitions and thinking that there was some power in the, in the, uh, in the idol and then caused him to stumble because he didn't eat it? <laughs> yes. Do you see the trap we get into when we worry too much about what others think about what we do? We can really get trapped because people can draw conclusions every different way. I mean, a man can bring uh, uh, his wife roses and, as an act of love, and he's responsible for his actions uh, of love. But she's free to interpret that any way she wants. Oh, sweetheart, you're the most loving, caring. So thank you so much. All righty, what did you do? <laughs> I mean, you know, can, can he control how she interprets it? You see, we're responsible for our conduct, our actions. But can we really control how other people interpret what we do? Somebody else had a hand? Yes. I was wondering if there wasn't a difference, too. We're looking at two different kinds of covenant people. The covenant people in the Old Testament, I mean, that was a slightly different covenant understanding than Paul in the New Testament. We're now under a different kind of covenant. Are we? No. Was there ever really more than one covenant? Or was there only one covenant ever? What's the, what's the covenant that's always been given? It's the covenant of grace. Were people in the Old Testament saved in any other direction, any other means, any other process other than the people in the New Testament? Were people saved in a different way before the cross versus after the cross? But their understanding Their understanding might have been different, but God's means of salvation was the same through all time. There's no different. And one of the things that, that Satan does, one of his strategies, and we're going to explore this as we go along, he's a divider. He likes to dissect things. He likes to cause factions. You, you see, Christ is a uniter. All things come together under one head, even Jesus Christ. We are at one, at one minute. Unification. God's kingdom is a kingdom of harmony, unity, oneness. Satan is a divider. He's a splitter. He causes breaks up into factions. I mean, the heavenly family split in heaven. And then earth was split apart from that. And then on earth we have all these little sections and segregations and, and ethnic groups and all these people fighting against each other because we're always splitting, 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 splitting. Okay? And in Christianity, we've done this thing. We split the Old Testament off from the New Testament. And so most of the evangelical world sees the Old Testament as having already passed by, and, and the New Testament is our, is, our, is our creed. And we don't see a unity between the two. But in the New Testament church, when, when the New Testament writers were writing and telling people about the faith and confidence in Scriptures, and they referred to the Scriptures, what were they referring to? The Old Testament. Okay? So the New Testament church was founded on the Old Testament writings. Satan knows that when we delete or, 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 or somehow diminish or devalue the Old Testament, that's part of the Old Covenant. Those old things. See, we, we, we don't learn from it. We don't take lessons. We think somehow there's something. That was the covenant of law. Now we're under the covenant of grace, which is a lie. The Old Testament was the covenant of grace as well. The difference is in the Old Testament, it was a mini theater acting out a, a, in miniature the plan of salvation. And if you notice, everyone was not required in, before the cross to be part of that system in order to be saved. We don't have any evidence that Nebuchadnezzar ever converted to Judaism, even though he came to value the Jewish God. We don't have any evidence that Naaman ever converted to Judaism, even though he came to value the Jewish God. One didn't have to be a Jew in order to be saved. And the Bible is clear in the Old Testament that his house should be called a house of prayer for all people. All people. The Jewish nation and all their rules were simply the director of the play had a script that those who got on stage and acted in the play had to follow. And that's what all that Old Testament stuff was about, is a script. And if you don't follow the script, the director can fire you from the cast. 
And so you constantly see God taking people off the stage. Okay, you guys aren't following the script. Away with just bringing some more guys that will follow the script. Get some new actors in here. And that's what we see happening. Let's go to Sunday's lesson. And the Sunday's lesson suggests that Daniel and his friends were so faithful because they had good parenting and spiritual training received at home. And that's the reason they did so well. Are parents responsible for the outcome of their children's lives? No. No. If parents were responsible for the outcome of their children's lives, then isn't God then responsible for Lucifer and Adam? Wasn't he the heavenly father, the father of these? And did he mess up in some way? Was he short? Did he have some failing in his parenting skills? No. Parents are not responsible for outcomes. Parents are responsible for their conduct in parenting. But you have to admit. <laughs> Parenting has influence. Right. But it doesn't. But we're not, talk, we're not talking influence. We're talking controlling outcomes. Well, I'm not saying controlling. But say, for instance, if they hadn't been raised in a family where they were taught about God. And so precisely. I mean, they were faithful in all that they did. Not a few things. They were faithful in all that they did. So what if the parents had just kind of you know, shown a few things along the way and nothing really good? Would they have turned out the way they did? We don't know that, do we? No, we don't, but I don't think they would have. <laughs> you know, there are people, and I, I know a friend of mine. Have you all heard of Ty Gibson? Yes. yes. Have you ever heard his story? Yep. yep. How he was raised? Yep. What kind of parenting did he have? Not much. Didn't have a father. Didn't have a father. His father. Then the stepfather he had was abusive to his mother. Wasn't raised really believing in God at all. Yet, look where he's at. A, a real man of God. Used for, for, really, I think, spreading the final message of mercy, the gospel. So, so it is true that parenting influences. Parenting does not determine outcomes. And so we want to be responsible in our parenting. We want to lay the best foundation we can. But we have to recognize, even when parenting is perfect, as in God parenting Lucifer, Adam, children still have the freedom to go away. And not only that, in this world of sin, there are a thousand other influences besides parental influences. You're walking along in the street of New York with your child in your hand on September 11, 2001, near the Trade Towers, and the thing comes down and your child sees you killed. Do you think that could influence the outcome of their life? Yeah. Did you do anything wrong? You a bad parent? No. There are a lot of things that happen that influence kids besides parenting on this planet. So I'm not devaluing parenting. Parenting is critical. We need to take that role seriously. But there are other things that influence. We're not responsible for outcomes. The second paragraph in the lesson there. Somebody read that for us on Sunday's lesson. Jewish families were not to take lightly the duty of instructing their children. Much of this took place through storytelling, an important part of the family life. Parents were to tell and retell stories of God leading in the history of their nation. Children were to learn how... Following God's commandments leads to life, while disregarding them leads to death. Now that last sentence just grabbed me. Children will learn how following God's commandments lead to life, and how disregarding them leads to death. How is this idea, following the commandments leads to life, disregarding them leads to death, how is the idea often taught? That's how you say works. Works. Or... That if you disobey the commandments, God's angry and he will kill you. Yes. Let's kind of look at how it might have been taught at that time. I mean, you're a Jewish child. You're growing up in a Jewish home at that time. Would you have known about the Passover? Yes. And at the Passover, the original Passover, there in Egypt, did some people die that night? 
And did God give some specific instructions on how they were to prepare a lamb and what they were to do with the blood on the doorpost? Were they commanded on what to do? And if they disobeyed those commands, what happened that night? But how did the firstborn die? At whose hand? God. Oh, you disobey, God kills. Hmm. What about Sodom? Would you have known the story of Sodom if you were a Jewish child? How did Sodom get destroyed? Uh, the angel, yes. What about Nadab and Abihu? Would you have known about Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, you think? Took an illegal fire into the sanctuary, and, and it says that, that fire came out from the Lord and consumed them. What about Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 18? We're asking the question, uh, how do we teach this idea of obeying the commandments leads to life, disregarding the commandments leads to death? Deuteronomy 6, 13 through 18. Somebody read that for us. Fear the Lord your God and serve him only and take your oaths in his name. Do not follow other gods, the gods of the people around you, for the Lord your God, who is among you, is a jealous God, and his anger will burn against you and he will destroy you from the face of the land. Do not test the Lord your God as you did in Massah. Be sure to keep the commandments of the Lord your God and the stipulations and decrees that he has given you. Do what is right and good in the Lord's sight so that it may go well with you. And you may go in and take over the good land that the Lord has promised and owed to your forefathers. So what's the message from these examples in this text? Why do we, if we do good, why, why do we live? And if we do bad, why do we die? Pleasure of the Lord. <laughs> Consequences. Yeah. Consequences uh, directly from our actions or, or is it coming out from God? Has anybody ever had the idea that if you don't do right, God will kill you? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Has that ever been preached? (laughs) Yes. We want to be compassionate to those who teach that idea because we can see how reading these texts they could misunderstand, they could draw the wrong conclusion, but we want to look beyond the text and see some evidence to see what's really going on, what the problem is in teaching it this way. And you guys know, and I'm not going to go through the whole lecture on the law of liberty again, but there is a law, it's a law of liberty, and basically this law is a constant. It's like the law of gravity. It's, it's just a pr- principle upon which things work. And when you violate the law of liberty, there are consequences that occur. Consequence number one, love is damaged. A desire to rebel is instilled in the heart. Consequence number two. And if you choose to stay in that situation, over time, individuality is destroyed. You lose the ability to think and to reason. Now, I'll give you just a quick example, and I'm going to show you how testable this law is. You, can, you don't have to believe me on it. You can test it out. Go to your spouse and tell your spouse if they, if they don't love you, you're going to begin beating them with a whip until they do. Or you're going to pour gasoline on them and burn them if they don't love you. And if you threaten them to do that, will love grow in their heart? No. Will they want to get closer or they want to get away? Do you, do you all see this as a testable law? You can test it. You don't have to believe me on it. And the reason I want you to recognize how testable this is, and you can test it in reverse, by the way, if you've had a relationship in which freedoms have been violated, in which rebellion has been working in the heart, in which love has been growing cold, if you have a relationship like that, if you turn it and begin promoting the the autonomy, the independence, the freedom, the well-being of your spouse, begin breathing freedom into that relationship, really giving of yourself to build that other one up, watch how love grows back in that relationship. You see, if you're dating someone and you say, you know, I'm sorry, I can't make it this weekend. I know we had these plans, but something's came up. And the person you're dating says, hey, that's okay. I only want you to be happy. If you're going to, if you've got other plans, you just go and do that. Whenever you get a chance, we'll be together and you feel complete freedom. Doesn't that just draw you to them? Rather than push you away? You see, this is a law. You can test it either direction. Give freedom, love grows. Take freedom away, love dies. 
I want you to see this. Because when you recognize, when you're convinced that it is a law, that it is a constant, that it is testable, then we have something measurable, something tangible, something reliable, something predictable. We have a standard against which we can test our doctrines, our theories, our beliefs about God, that God will never violate his own character of love, which means he will never violate the law of liberty because love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. When you're convinced on this, then we can put this standard to use. Then we can take all of our theories, all of our doctrines, we can pair to the standard and say, wait a minute, that can't be true. And I'm going to explore that and tell you exactly what happens in a moment. Yes, you had a hand up, Ashley. Can you explain the jealous part of God? Because I know it's used a lot, like God is a jealous God. But can you kind of explain the meaning of There is a meaning of, I'm jealous in a selfish way, for me, because I want what I want when I want it. But there's the, I'm jealous for your reputation. Have you ever said, I'm really jealous for your reputation? I'm jealous for you. Okay? And so God is jealous for our welfare. He's jealous to protect us. He's jealous for anything that would, would, would hurt us, would impinge upon us. And so he wants that closeness with us because only in relationship with him do we have healing, do we have life. So he's jealous for us. And the anger that will burn against us? Yes, the anger. What is the anger? Against sin. You have to handle that in context, too. Let's go through the whole dialogue here because we're going to come back to how we understand that. But remember the wrath of God in Romans chapter 1? Verse 18, the wrath of God is letting go. The anger of God is letting go, letting people have what they've chosen. But there is a different type of anger, too, that God expresses. Sometimes, does a parent ever express anger to a child who is on a self-destructive course? Because they really want to hurt the child? Or because they want the child to somehow uh, have something rise in their mind that will deter them from the self-destructive course? Will parents risk displaying anger if it causes even a little bit of fear in the child to get that child to deter from that course? Your child is riding a bike. They're riding a bike and, and you're coming up the street and they're heading down the street and you can see that they're heading straight for an intersection where a car is coming. And you tell your child to stop. The child can't see the car because the car is around the corner. But from your vantage point, you see it. And so you tell your child to stop. But you've got an unruly child. You've got a rebellious child. You've got a stubborn child. A child who doesn't listen to guidance and instruction. Um, a stiff-necked child. Okay? How are the children of Israel described? Rebellious, unruly, stiff-necked, don't listen. And in Hosea 4:16, God says, the children of Israel are stubborn, stubborn like a mule. How can I feed them like lambs in a meadow? How can I speak gentle words? Because they're stubborn, they don't listen. So your child is heading, go on their bike, and you say, stop right now. And your child is stubborn and doesn't stop, and they keep riding to the intersection. You see the car getting closer. What do you do at that point? You say, well, I, you know, I wouldn't ever want to raise my voice at my child. I would never want to threaten. I wouldn't want to get angry. Uh, I wouldn't want to scream, or would you scream? If you don't stop right now, I'm taking that bike, you're never riding again. They still don't stop. I'm going to beat your bottom raw. They stop. And when they stop, do you then go over and beat them? No. If they don't stop and they get by the car, do you then go over and beat them? I mean, this is the principle that we find working. A lot of times you see God raising his voice in the Old Testament, using this, this type of language. Look at what actually is happening. The people are being treated as children because that's how they're functioning. They're functioning as children. So let's go through this issue, though, about love. I want you to see this law, how it's a standard, how it's used that we can test and measure things against. God has given us evidence in his word. 
from the beginning of the controversy in heaven, what was the controversy over? And what kind of character does Satan represent God as being? His own. Selfish? But what about how he used his power? How did Satan represent God using power? And if you stepped out of line, what would he do with his power? Hurt you, zap you. Okay, This is the representation of Satan. And I want you to see, there have always been these two pictures of God through history. Right from the fall of man, actually even before, when Satan started his war in heaven, there's these two pictures of God. The truth is represented in Christ. The lies as represented by Satan. And then after Adam and Eve sinned, we see the divergence starting right in the first children. We have Cain and we have Abel. Two different pictures of God. Abel's sacrifice, working with God to show the truth and the coming Messiah. Uh, Cain's sacrifice, showing his willingness to work to appease God, to pay God off, to buy him off so he won't be mad and angry. We have the God of Abraham versus the God of Molech, Baal, and all the other gods of paganism. We have Jesus representing God in human flesh, the God of love. You've seen me, you've seen the Father, self-sacrificing love. We have the pharisaical view of God, a God who would want Jesus down off the cross in order for them to keep the Sabbath, a God who would torture, kill, a God who would manipulate, lie, and cheat. We have this God represented by the Pharisees. We have the apostolic God, the one of the apostles that we read Paul, love is fulfillment of the law. We read John, greater love is no man than to give his life for a friend. We have the self-sacrificing, loving being represented by the apostolic church. Where they come into the unity, everyone giving of themselves to build up each other, sacrificing themselves for each other. But then we have pagan Rome. We have the pagan Rome gods that are at war with this true picture of God. And then we have a critical point in human history. We have the conversion of Constantine from paganism to Christianity. And suddenly, paganism is no more paganism. Paganism has become Christianity. When Constantine became a Christian, did he actually begin worshiping a god who was like Jesus? Or did he worship a god who was just like his pagan gods, but now we call them Christian names? And this is what happened. In the Roman church, became the purveyor of the lies about God. The pagan system of appeasement. We have Mary, Jesus, and all the saints in heaven praying to, uh, to, to God to hold back His anger and wrath because we need to be protected from Him. The history of this, this false view of God coming down through the dark ages. Paul prophesied about this in Thessalonians when he said, after the cross, that the man of sin would come and he would set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. He set himself up in our minds where, where this, these distortions about God became the prevailing view of the world about how everyone saw God. But we see that a reformation began. We began to reform the church. We began to get Bible truths. But what were these Bible truths trying to lead us to? Was God primarily concerned to lead us that we get baptized in the right way? that we go to church on the right day, that we eat the right foods. Is this the primary concern? Or all these things steps to lead us back to see God for who He really is. Life eternal is knowing God. The lies have to be purged out of our mind. And so we ultimately will culminate this whole thing in a future event when the beast power comes, whatever you want to call that system, but we don't have to wonder at its methods. The methods of the beast power are no one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. It's a coercive power, a power that manipulates, a power that violates the law of liberty, which is just the opposite of God's power. 
giving self and, and, and presenting the truth in love, leaving people free. These are the two pictures of God that have come down through history. The final contest. So, I tell you all this to ask the question. What happens in a human relationship if a person is in a human relationship in which their freedoms are violated, in which they're controlled, in which they're dominated, in which they're not allowed to think for themselves, they're always under threat? What happens in that relationship? Love is damaged. Desire to rebel is still, but if they don't rebel, then what happens? Yes. They lose their identity, their ability to think. They become shadow people. What do you think happens when we worship a God who is dictatorial, domineering, where there's no freedom, says do it or else? The same exact thing happens when you violate the law of liberty. And Christians, and this is, just get your mind around this, when we worship a God who will violate freedom, who will say love me or else, then only two things happen. We either become shadow people. We lose our individuality. We lose our ability to think and to reason. And we become non-thinking religious nuts. God said it. I believe it. That settles it. We don't ask any questions around here because we've surrendered our thinking to God. He told us to do it. Don't think. We become shadows of this God who's twisted. And then we can strap bombs on ourselves and go into buildings. We can fly planes into buildings in the name of our God. We can go and shoot abortion doctors and blow up abortion clinics because we become a shadow of this twisted image of God. And we no longer think and reason for ourselves. Consequence number one. Or consequence number two, we rebel against God altogether and we become agnostics and atheists and we reject the idea of God altogether. This is Satan's goal. Satan's goal is to destroy individuality, to destroy your mind, to destroy your capacity for thinking for yourself, or to get you to have such an ugly view of God that you reject the concept of God altogether. This is the consequence when we present a God and preachers who preach from the pulpit that God says, love me, but if you don't, I will use my power to torture you, and we call it justice, and then kill you, are promoting Satan's version of Christ and are actually damaging minds, souls, and keeping people from the kingdom. Can I say it any stronger? Do you all see it? We have a standard. It's testable. Yes? I think that was the point with the three Hebrews. They were standing for individuality and representing the true one God against the many gods that everybody else had. Because there were other Hebrews that went along. That's right. Excellent point. See, love cannot exist in an atmosphere without freedom. Get your mind around that idea, because it's going to come down to that in the end. Will you join with a, with a political religious system that will use coercive power, legislative power, governmental power to force people into line? Or will you stand up and say, no, I would rather, as it says in Revelation chapter 12, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. And so we find the Bible teaching us that God won't do it this way. Zechariah 4.6 Not by might, nor by power, but by the way the Spirit works, says the Lord. So when, when Lucifer rebelled in heaven, do we find God using his power to force Lucifer back into line? Do we find it? Could he have done that? Does he have the power to do it? Why didn't he? Well, what would have happened if he did? Say that louder. Lucifer would have been right. Lucifer would have been right. And all, would love have grown stronger through the universe? Or would fear spread like a plague throughout all the intelligent beings in the universe if God would have done that? And rebellion would have spread. Yes, Russell. How do we explain the, the story of Balaam 
I've been struggling through patriarchs and prophets lately, and some of the language that's used in there is very dark. Uh, it, it, and it, it seems to portray a God that, that would control. And in, in the story of Balaam, uh, she actually says that Balaam wanted to curse Israel. You know, this is the story of the false prophet that was the Moabites that, that hired him to curse Israel. And he actually wanted to curse Israel. He wanted to get that reward. But God basically forced him to bless them. Let's see if that doesn't get answered here as we continue to progress through, because I have similar questions along that line. But I wanted to read just a couple of quotes from one of the founders of our church to show you that my presentation, my view, isn't something I just popped out of the blue. This is historic. People have seen this before. One of the founders of our church has seen this as well. This is out of Desire of Ages 761. In the opening of the great controversy, Satan had declared that the law of God could not be obeyed, that justice was inconsistent with mercy, and that, should the law be broken, it would be impossible for the sinner to be pardoned. Every sin must meet its punishment, urged Satan. Notice, this is Satan's argument that sin has to be punished. And if God should remit the punishment of sin, he would not be a God of truth and justice. Same book, page page 759. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one cast a pebble to the earth. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. You see, if this is true, then can we have God using compelling power anytime? Can we say, oh no, he's never used it yet, but one day he'll use compelling power because then it's okay to do it. No, then we still have him showing Satan's character. Can't do it. The Lord's principles of not are this order. His authority rests upon goodness, mercy, and love, and the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are the prevailing power. Truth and love are the prevailing power. Not this idea that he has an angry sword, and he's going to slaughter people, and he's going to kill people, and he's going to fire down from heaven and torture people. This is a gross distortion of God, violates liberty, either damages the soul so people rebel in their heart, give up the idea of God, or we surrender in fear and lose our individuality and we're unfitted for the kingdom either way. And then 20, 21 manuscript release, page 152. The kingdom of Christ does not and cannot bear any resemblance to the kingdoms of the world. In the kingdom of Christ, there is no instrument of coercion. In it, force has no place. The gospel of him who gave his life for the life of the world is a gospel of peace. It is the Savior's grace, his love, his tender compassion that breaks every barrier down. The gospel is a power of itself. And above all, and encompassing all, it is a divine immutable principle, as well spring-fed by the stream that flows from the throne of God. Do you see this principle made here? And it's critical we get our mind around this because I'm telling you, our church is under attack. The Christian church is infected with this distortion about God being a God who has to be appeased, who has to have a blood payment, who is angry and wrathful, that if our intercessor steps out from heaven and you haven't had your name pardoned, stamped by your name in heaven, that he will have to rain fire down from heaven on you, that one day he will torture and make people pay, It's a violation of his very nature, and it destroys individuality. Christianity has become infected with these lies. Then, if that is true, if this position I'm putting out is right, then how do we understand things in the Old Testament where God put many of his children into the grave? Can we think of any examples where God actually did it? The flood. The flood? Sodom? 
Gordathan Byram, 185,000 Assyrians, uh, for the platoons that came to arrest Elijah, firstborn of Egypt. I mean, did God put people into the grave frequently in the Old Testament by his power directly? Yes. Then how can we actually say, okay, here's he do, doing this, but yet the position I'm putting forward is true at the same time? Anybody get confused by that? Yeah. I see some heads nodding. Okay? Well, first off, we need to recognize how God defines death. This is Matthew 9, 23, and 24. Jesus is speaking, and Jesus is God, yes? So God on earth came to tell us, came to open our eyes, came to help us see the truth. And notice how God on earth describes this scenario. He had a funeral of a little girl, and he says, And when Jesus entered the ruler's house and saw the food players and the noisy crowd, he said, Go away. The girl is not dead, but asleep. And they laughed at him. Was Jesus lying? Well, then, she's not dead. She's asleep. Well, when he was talking to the disciples about Lazarus in John 11, 11 through 14, he says, after he had said this, he went to tell them, our friend Lazarus is asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So the Lord told them plainly in a language they could understand, Lazarus is dead. Now, does God define what we call death as death? No. No. Has God ever killed anyone? By his definition of death? No. God has never killed anyone. Nobody has been killed by God. Now, many people have been put to sleep. Many people have been put to sleep, let's be clear. But is putting to sleep in the grave the same thing as death according to Jesus Christ? No. No, but how about at the end... Let's keep going. We've got to keep digging, don't we? So according to God, in the human flesh, God has never killed anyone. He's only put people to sleep. Now, I want to ask you another question. Have you ever noticed that you see a difference in how God acted before the cross and how God acted after the cross? Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever noticed before the cross we see God putting people to rest in the grave all over the place? I mean, all these examples I just gave you. Do you notice after the cross, we don't see God doing this anymore? I mean, not like he did before the cross. Is that because now, since the cross, the earth is such a more loving and kind and gentle and Christ-like place? People are so much more caring of each other. We don't have anybody in history since the cross, like Nero or Stalin or Hitler or Amin or Pol Pot or cannibalism in certain cultures or the worship of Kali, the Hindu goddess of death, or World War I or World War II or Rwanda or Bosnia. I mean, we don't have problems like that since the cross. Wait a minute. My point is, hasn't the world been just as vile, just as disgusting, just as rebellious, just as violent, just as wicked after the cross as before? Maybe even more? Then why don't we see God doing what he did in the Old Testament times, putting people into the graves? Because Christ is out there pleading his blood. Ha ha ha. Interesting. So he wasn't pleading before the cross. Ah, okay. Christ is only for us since he died and knows how bad it is on us down here. Yeah, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? See, and, and you see the implication about what kind of God we would be serving if that were true. But there needs to be an answer to this question. As soon as man fell into sin, as soon as, this, as mankind, Adam and Eve sinned, what was necessary in order for mankind to be saved? A savior. 
A savior was necessary. Everybody agree with that? That once Adam and Eve sinned, mankind, this species, could not be saved without Christ coming and completing his mission. We can talk all day about what that was, but he needed to come and complete his mission. Everybody agree? Was that told to Adam and Eve, and did the serpent know that right in the garden? Yes. The seed will crush the serpent's head, and the serpent will bruise his heel. Wasn't that a prophecy of the coming Messiah to save this race? Yes. Did the serpent know that his hold on this planet was not secure, that a Messiah was coming? Do you think that Satan then had an agenda to do everything he could to prevent Jesus from ever coming to this planet? Well, what strategy would he need to do to stop Jesus from coming? He couldn't do it by power. He couldn't set up a hedge of angelic uh, satellites around the planet. And as Jesus approaches, he, he fends him off. You can't come here. He can't do it that way, can he? So how could he prevent Jesus from coming? The line from... Destroying. Pardon? Say that louder. The line that the truth was coming through uh, from living. So by having no one, not one person on earth who would be willing to work with God. No one through whom God could work. Everybody, 100% of every person, totally committed to Satan, and nobody's heart sensitive to the movement of the Spirit of God. Shuts the avenue down. Do we notice at the time of the flood, how many righteous men were left on the earth? Wow, the avenue was getting pretty small at that point, wasn't it? Pretty narrow avenue for the Messiah to work. So God acted to keep open the avenue. Now, he chose a man named Abraham to... Uh, be a people to evangelize the world through the, the, the acting out in this little mini theater of the, of the great controversy and God's plan to heal and to save. He, he chose them. This was his plan. And Abraham settled on a plain, and right near that plain were a couple of cities, actually three or four or five, six cities. Sodom and Gomorrah are the, are the biggest names, but there was like about ten or twelve of these little cities around that, that were all very, very hedonistic. What would have happened, do you think, to the children of Israel if God wouldn't have acted there? With, without Sodom and Gomorrah and some of these other cities of the plain that were, were taken out of the way, did the children of Israel, even without them, struggle with sensualism, fertility cults, idolatry, sexual worship? Did, did they struggle with that even without those cities there? Yeah. What would it have been like, you think, if those cities would have stayed? Do you think God took and, and did an excision there to keep open the avenue so that the, that the avenue through which the Messiah would come would be protected? Do we see at Carmel, God using power in a mighty way at Carmel? What was the purpose? To keep open a challenge. 7,000 haven't bowed the knee. Well, we're getting small. We're down to 7,000 now out of a whole country. We've got to take some action. Do we see God doing this through time? Now, once Christ completed his mission, though, the mission is complete. Salvation is secure. The, 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 the world has been redeemed. Satan's power is broken. Does God still have to act to keep open that channel? No. And we see God not doing it anymore. So those Old Testament stories, as I understand them, are not evidences of God inflicting punishment, God taking out wrath, God working to hurt and destroy. It's God graciously, patiently. Look at, and look how long he waits. Look how long he waits. One righteous man on the whole earth. God patiently working to keep open the avenue so that mankind can be saved. And notice, according to Christ, he didn't kill anyone. He just put them in the grave. So what did he do? He just suspended them in time. He put them in cryogenic storage. It's what he did. 
And they're all coming up out of the grave. Everybody who's gone in the grave is coming out, either to the resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation, with the same train of thought that they went into the grave, for them to complete their lives. Each person completes their own life. Is this not what the evidence is saying? Yeah. Does it make more sense? And so in Balaam's case, the same thing. He was working to keep open the avenue through which the Messiah would come. And also to make a demonstration that God's people, and it was also constantly working to show, to try to awaken minds and hearts to the truth, to remove the clouds, to remove the darkness, so that people could see. And in, in, Bible time, in Old Testament Bible times, there is great light, and there is dim light. As my friend Brad Cole says, great light, you see, great light at a few places. Abraham, Moses would go in and talk to God face to face as a man speaks to a friend. Great light. Great understanding. And as God thunders at Sinai and all the children are afraid, Moses says, there's no need to be afraid. Moses had great light in his mind. But most of the people couldn't get the great light. And so after Carmel, Elijah runs away. And on the mountain in discouragement, there's a great wind. But the Lord is not in the wind. This is the dim light. There's an earthquake. The Lord's not in the earthquake. There's a fire. The Lord's not in the fire. Then there's a sound of the the quiet voice, the still small voice. This is the great light. What God is really like is true nature. And so in the Old Testament times, many of the people were so darkened, all they could see, the only thing they would respond to is, your God is powerful. Wow, he's got power. Power, power, power. Okay, we like power. Dim light. Dim light. Great light is when you see the truth about God's character, the one who wields the power as revealed in Jesus. Great light. Amen. And so, many times, God did use dim light to reach people because that's all they could understand. Yes? I think what's helped me to understand this is I've come to the place where I believe that in the end, everybody gets what they want. There's no question about it. Everybody gets exactly what they've chosen. And ultimately, at the end of the thousand years, when all are raised, that's what's revealed. People will get to choose where they are. Jerusalem comes down, and the gates are open. Nobody's kept out by God. But nobody comes in because they don't want to come in. Why? I just love putting the pieces together. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God except he be born again. But then over in Revelation it says, when he comes again, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And Jesus said at his trial, you will see the Son of Man coming at the right hand of power in his majesty and glory. They're going to see him coming, but you can't see his kingdom unless you're born again. Now these people aren't born again. And what it means is, they see with their physical eyes the beings sitting on the throne. They see Jesus with their eyes. But what they cannot see, because their hearts have not been converted, is they cannot see his character of love. They cannot see who he truly is. They see the being in physical stature, but what they see in their mind's eye is Satan's lie about God, a being who will hurt them, a being who will destroy them, a being of severity, and thus they run from him, begging for the rocks and trees to hide them. Because they cannot see him for who he is, because their minds have been steeped in the lies. This is why they hide from him. And so they see him with their physical eyes, but not their mind's eye. Isn't yes? That kind of what happened to Adam and Eve the very first time when they sinned. The next thing you know, they're running behind trees. Exactly right. As soon as they sin, and this is part of what sin is. What is sin? Believing the lies about God. When they believe the lies about God, their nature was changed to rebellious, fear-centered, selfish beings. And it's the truth that sets us free. The truth about what? God. The truth about God. In the last paragraph in Sunday's lesson, it talks about training our children again, and it talks about doing things like the phylacteries. You know what the phylacteries are? 
It says that, that you should read these words of Scripture, these laws and things, and you should bind them to your hearts on your foreheads. And what they did is they made these little boxes, and they took rolls of Scripture, and they put the Scripture in the little roll, they put them in the box, and they would tie the box on their arm, and they tie the box on their forehead. You can go places, like in New York City, and some places where you have very strict uh, Jews, and you will see them walking around with little boxes tied on their arms and foreheads. This is tying the, the Word of God on your arm. Binding. It says, bind them to your hearts, bind them to your minds, okay? And this is what they're doing, binding them. Is that what it means to tie them onto your body like this? No. No. We should bind the Word into the heart. That's what it's talking about. Now, talking about ra raising children with religious instruction. Can we raise children with religious instruction in such a way that our religious training and upbringing and instruction actually drives people away from God and drives them away from the church? Tell me how. How does that work? What kind of training, what kind of principles, what kind of methodologies, what kind of things actually drive children away from God and drive them away from the church? Okay, hypocrisy. Well, it's not done in love either. Not done in love? Yes? Because I said so. Ah, because I said so. Now, the because I said so is an arbitrary power. No reason. Just do it or else. Violation of the law of liberty results in either they succumb, lose their ability to think, become these non-thinking entities who just follow. And i got to tell you, there are quite a few in this community that I know personally that don't know how to think. They just follow the rules. And when you challenge their thinking, they get really, really upset. Because they don't know how to think. They just follow the rules. And when something doesn't go right, when they've kept all the rules, I've paid my tithe, I've gone to church, I've always eaten the right foods, gone to church on the right day, did all these things, and then some tragedy comes into their life. They don't know how to handle it. Well, I've done all the right things. Good things are supposed to happen. I haven't done anything wrong. What's all this about? And they collapse under it. Because they don't know how to process. Because they're shadow people. Or they rebel against it. One of the two. So, hand somewhere else. I was just saying it didn't make sense because what you tell them to your children, it doesn't make any sense to them. You you don't represent God correctly, and that naturally brings out the, well, this is mean. This isn't making any sense to me. It, uh, it's ridiculous. Why should I follow that? Absolutely. I just love what you're saying. This is how I've written them down. Rules without reason. Rules without reason. What do you think rules without reason do to people? And I got a lot of rules without reason when I was a kid. Did anybody else get rules without reason? You can wade on Sabbath, but you cannot swim. Water above the knee becomes sin. Now, where's that written? Why is that the case? Okay, well, uh, you know, well, uh, uh, and there's all this hemming and hawing. Um, the, the one I loved, I mean, this is some of the arbitrariness. And, and if, if you're not an Adventist, listen to this tape. We're talking some unique stuff in our church, but I promise you, if you have the eyes to open your eyes, look at your own denominational background and cultural background, you'll find the same thing going on. It happens in all the churches. But Sabbaths, we're not supposed to go out and eat and spend money on Sabbath, right? But when we have fellowship weekends together at, say, our church retreat at Kahara, you can ahead of time buy your meals, can't you? And you get a ticket. And what is a ticket? It's a piece of paper that has certain value that you exchange for goods or services. And you exchange that for goods or services for your meal. And if I pull out a $10 bill, what do I have? I have a piece of paper that has a certain value that I exchange for goods or services. But that would be sin. The paper is not. Now, what is the deal on that? 
I mean, do you see a problem here? This is the kind of stuff we tell our kids, and our kids that, have, that, that think go, that is stupid. <laughs> and if you worship a God who is that stupid, I don't want to worship him. Yes? Well, a lot of people don't realize is that uh, credit cards got their start in great part because people who didn't think they should exchange actual money on Sabbath were using their credit card. I had not heard that. Um, but do you see some of this rules without reason and what it does? There's lots of rules we have without reason. And we should be able to give reasons. Because I tell you, God never gives us a rule that there's not a reason for. Now, it might be sometimes we don't understand the reason because we're too immature, we're too childlike, we can't figure it out. But every one of God's rules have reasons behind them. And ultimately, he wants us to graduate past the rules that we don't need them anymore. What did Paul say uh, to Timothy over in the book of Timothy? It says in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting verse 8, it says, We know that the law is good if a man uses it properly. We also know that the law is not made for good men, but for lawbreakers and rebels and ungodly and sinful, the unholy, the irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for adulterers, for perverts, for slave traders and liars and perjurers and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Who's the law for? It's not for the good men. The law wasn't for you. It wasn't for me. It was for the, it was for the sinful men. Why is that the case? Because we don't need it. If we dedicate it and we live for him, we don't. What is the purpose of the law? It's something to to diagnose a problem. That's exactly. If you get a correct diagnosis, you can render correct treatment. When the law abounds, sin abounds all the more, right? Paul says, I didn't even know what sin was until the commandment came. And then I could see how sinful and sick and, and, and diseased I am. The law is like an MRI of your soul. When you've got physical symptoms, you, you're not feeling well, so you've got a mass in your abdomen, something's wrong, you go in the MRI scanner, the MRI scanner is for the sick, for the diseased, for the infirmed, for those who have medical problems. The MRI scanner is for them. The MRI scanner is not for the healthy. It's not for those who are well. The MRI scanner is for the sick. Now, once you go in the MRI scanner and it diagnoses how sick you are, do we then need to appease the scanner so it won't find anything wrong with us anymore? <laughs> no. You see, we, we have all this idea that the law has to be appeased. The law doesn't have to be appeased. There's no penalty to the law. What we have to do is recognize we've been diagnosed sick, and what we need is healing. Recreation, new heart, right spirit, circumstances of the heart by the Holy Spirit, recreation, regeneration, mind of Christ, law written on the hearts and minds. All this is a regenerative, restorative, healing process, so that when the law is written on the heart and mind, then when we go before the scanner, what's the scanner find? Sickness or wellness? Yeah, it's not needed for us. We're well. That's the point. How did we get well? Didn't there have to be a law for us to understand that there was a standard to go by? But the law doesn't heal us. The law only diagnoses us, helps us see the problem. What is it that heals? Truth. Truth about God wins us to trust. In trust we open the heart. Romans 5.5, 5, I will pour my love into your hearts. God is love. He pours himself into our hearts. We become partakers of the divine nature the Holy Spirit is poured out and actually takes the character of Christ what he's achieved and re literally reproduces it in us writes in our hearts and minds love for other people takes away fear perfect love casts out fear 
You see? It's a transforming, regenerating, recreative experience. And this is those who are ready to meet Christ when he comes. In Revelation chapter 12, these are they who do not love their life so much as to shrink from death. Fear has been purged out. Love for God and love for others has been written in again. This is what God is trying to bring us to. And we cannot have that experience as long as we're afraid of God himself. As long as we hold the lies about God that we can't trust him, that we need to be protected from him, that we need to have Jesus up there holding back the Father so the Father won't lash out against us. And I was going to say one more thing. In Thursday's lesson, when we look at the fiery furnace, the lion's den, the key to the faithfulness for the three worthies that stayed faithful, in my understanding is fear and desire to save self had been replaced with love in their hearts, love for God, and maybe even love for other people. Is it possible they realized the greater issues in the controversy between Christ and Satan? Is it possible they understood the difference between the kingdom of love and the kingdom of fear and selfishness? Is it possible that they not only love God, but the people of that foreign land? Is it possible that, they love, that in love they were willing to give themselves as a means of demonstrating God's power over fear of the human heart? that they could stand without fear going into that fiery furnace and the people who are terrified of death their whole life, just like what happened after the cross when the, when the uh, uh, Christians were being persecuted. What was it that spread the gospel so quickly? That the Romans who were terrified of death saw these Christians singing hymns. Smiles on their faces are about to be martyred. And they were going like, whoa, something is wrong here. And they go, I've got to go find out what they know that I don't know. Is it possible Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego understood these issues and loved God and loved these people so much they were willing, if, if needed, to give themselves to bring the evidence of God's love and the power it can have over transforming the human heart? This will be the condition of those who are ready to meet Christ when he comes. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have not left us in darkness, that you have gone to incredible lengths over time, so patiently working to keep open the channel through, through which Christ would come. And Christ came. He won the victory. He revealed the truth. Help us understand that truth rightly, that we can be one to trust, that we can know that you are just like Jesus, always been on our side. And in trust, we open our heart. We ask that the Spirit will be poured out to transform us, take away our fear, our doubts, our insecurities. Fill us with your love that we can love you and love others. As you have loved us, we pray in your holy name. Amen.